the sleeper in the bus. There's skill, there's luck. A keeper or cut. Open file, a case shut. A short stop or stop short. Press play or press abort. Intelligence for sports. Good of y'all to listen. Aiming at what truth is. Mike and Eno pitching like the name is Michael Lewis. Others in the dust or left out to rust. Who's hitting? Who's missing? The sleeper in the bus. The sleeper in the bus. Hello out there in Fantasyland, and welcome to the Sleeper and the Bust. I'm Mike Podhorzer, and I'm joined today by Rotographs contributor Colin Zarzicki. And today we'll be discussing a trio of men returning from injury, and perhaps the next step in player projections. And first, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is that every time we record, I check on the most searched for player on Fangraphs. And Colin, I want you to follow along with me today. Check out who's number one in the most searched for players on Fangraphs. We have Merle Settlemeyer. Merle Settlemeyer. Seems reasonable. I was just looking for Merle Settlemeyer last night. So it sounds like. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, the the Settlemeyer family clearly is trying to dig up his statistics to commemorate his fantastic career in Major League Baseball. Yeah, he certainly had a. Hell of a slightly above average 1928. He pitched one year, and his stats are hilarious. 82 and a third innings, 12 strikeouts. 12 strikeouts. He has a 3% strikeout rate. Yeah, he's he's not going to be helping you much in the case category in your in your Roto League. I, I wouldn't be looking for him to help much in September. <laughs> and, and to go along with only 12 strikeouts, 34 walks, that's not good. But, <laughs> hey, he's good at keeping the home runs down. Only two home runs in those 82 innings. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's not going to be of much help to the ratio category as a 540-70 ERA, a 182 whip. <laughs> I, I don't know about this guy's future. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I'm really now. I'm kind of curious as to exactly what's going on. Is there some sort of uh, ESPN article that's suddenly linking to FamGraphs about the uh, the <laughs> extraordinaire Merle Settlemeyer or something? I I don't well, know. I did my full research and I googled Merle Settlemeyer and I found nothing. Oh. <laughs> so it's it's one of those weird quirks that I have no idea how sometimes these players get in this most searched for list, because I've seen really strange players. There was one day where I saw four or five of them in the most searched for list of guys that haven't played in five years and there was no new news on. And so me and Eno would just wonder what happens that causes this, whether it's uh, Dave Appleman just having some fun and just picking random guys and then clicking on their names like yeah. a million times or what. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe this is what like, you know, like Dave Cameron does at his house parties or something. I don't know if they're just like, guys, let's do it. Like tonight, you know, let's let's find some guy, you know, fan. Russell is the man today. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, the real most interesting player alive is it well, the real one is Settlemeyer, but we're not gonna talk about the number two and the number three guy. We've talked about them enough. And I don't think we've talked that much about Max Scherzer, and he's the number four guy. So let's talk about Max Scherzer. And is there anything, Colin, that you see? I mean, basically, he broke out in terms of peripherals and underlying metrics last year. His Sierra was sub three last year, clearly the best of his career. He sustained that this year. If you look at Sierra, he's pitched even better this year. Is there anything that you could see that he's doing differently these last two years that led to this ultimate breakout? Or is this just a matter of Max Scherzer was always a top prospect, his minor league? record basically suggests 
suggested that this was possible and he's just better for whatever reason. Uh, I mean, I don't find it tremendously surprising. I've actually been, a, you know, a Scherzer on the Scherzer bandwagon since, since when he's up with the Diamondbacks. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you. The last couple of years have really been, been where he's broken out. I mean, you see things like his, his swinging strike rates up. And I mean, the, really the big thing is that the strikeouts have gone up 10%. I mean, he's always actually been relatively stingy with the walks and the single digits in, in walk rate. Um, but the strikeouts jumped from, you know, mid to low 20% in K percentage to, to 30% uh, the last couple of years. And I'd have to pull up his, his pitch effects. I don't know if that's a, I mean, his, like his fastball velocity, there's not really anything that's, that's a signal there. Um, it could be a matter of, of pitch sequencing. Um, you know, we've seen kind of some of these jumps with, with these guys when they're in their mid to late twenties as they kind of mature as a pitcher. Um, you know, maybe they have a better grasp on how to work in their breaking stuff and that can kind of help bump some of those strikeout numbers a little bit. Um, but I don't think there's really any doubt that he's, he's pitching like an elite pitcher now. So. Yeah, I mean, I was looking at his pitch FX data, trying to identify pitches that are inducing more swinging strikes, and it was tough to find anything obvious to point to to explain his breakout last year. Though, I mean, the explanation that I think most assumed was just because his fastball jumped a mile per hour last year, and so that probably had a lot to do with it. But this year's fastball is back down to where it had been previously, back down to 93.3. However, he's apparently introduced a curveball. And uh, I thought that might just be a flaw in the BIS data, but PitchFX is showing that too, that he's all of a sudden throwing a curveball. And I haven't watched enough of his starts to hear the broadcasters talk about the curveball, and, and so I don't know anything about this curveball other than suddenly showing up. Yeah, and I mean, I, I noticed in the PitchFX data, I mean, the one thing is that it, he's only thrown it, at least according to, to PitchFX, and this all kind of breaks down into the BIS and, and how the MLB AM algorithm breaks these out. Um, you know, the automated algorithm's gotten a lot better in the last few years, but it's, it's still not perfect. Um, I mean, he's only thrown 170 of them. He actually has a negative linear weight on it. So uh, on the actual pitches he throws it, it actually hasn't been quite as useful. But that could be one of those pitches that as you introduce things like off-speed pitches, even if they're not great off-speed pitches, you get this a lot when you have uh, two-pitch pitchers, um, which is one of the reasons why, for example, like Shelby Miller, you really want him to work on some off-speed stuff, is just even adding something else, some, some more velocity differential. It, that pitch itself might not be great, but it really helps your fastball or something like that. And his fastball linear weights are way, way up this year. And, and that introduction to the curveball might be something that's contributing to that. Yeah, and if you look at the curveball, the strikeout and walk rates that have been on that pitch – he actually is showing the lowest walk percentage of any pitch on that curveball, and uh, the K percentage is just as high as both the fastball and the changeup. So in terms of effectiveness, just looking at the strikeouts and walks induced by that pitch, it's been fantastic for him. So anytime you can introduce a fourth pitch that's just as good, then I think that's a big boost, and it's going to help his other pitches as well. Yeah, and I... And- I mean, I think we see that with a lot of guys, and, and uh, it seems to be really helping him. The other thing that's helping him, too, is it looks like his slider's been been fairly effective this year, too, uh, in terms of, of a large jump. Um, but other than that, you know, he's not a whole lot different than he was last year. The BAPIP's down, and that's really helping. Um, but, you know, I think this is, this is what you get with him, and you see that he's got a uh, top-tier upside. Now, having done this essentially two years in a row, obviously the ERA is down a full run, but... As you pointed out, that's really just the BABIP. I mean, last year, 333. This year, 247, 
which just goes to show how much luck is involved in BABIP. I mean, they had the same defense, so you can't blame the defense last year and then say that that's the reason that he's been good this year. So with two years in a row, sub three Sierra marks, is that enough to establish himself as like a top five starting pitcher going forward? I mean, where where do you see him being valued next season in drafts? Uh I mean, the interesting thing, we'll see what his innings total is this year. I mean, one of the big knocks on Scherzer the last couple of years is that he, you know, he's kind of, he had those shoulder problems when he was in Arizona and he's really never gotten to 200 innings. Um, and this will be the, really the first year that he pushes that, especially if the Tigers go to the postseason. I mean, you could expect him possibly to be looking at something like 220, 230 innings. Uh, but given the rates, as long as he stays healthy, uh, I don't love the innings bump, but I think you got to consider him in the top five AL pitchers, top. 10 overall, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's tough for me now just to come up with names that would be better. But given that he's not going to go 220 innings, he's had, you know, some sort of, you're right, shoulders, injuries in the past, then, I mean, basically putting him down for that many innings, it's going to be not the best idea. And that's obviously going to cap his win total and his strikeouts and uh, the effect of his ratios. So I think it would be a safer bet to say top 10. Top 5 is probably pushing it. However, I would bet that in the majority of leagues, he is actually drafted in the top 5. But I probably would not do so. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, if he gets the Cy Young Award, I mean, that's kind of one of those shiny things that, that might end up in, and uh, on your mantle. And if that's the case, he might actually end up being a little overdrafted in fantasy leagues with that name value. So it's just something to keep an eye on as you go into drafts next year. All right, so after last night's epic Diamondbacks and Phillies game, Roy Halladay, all of a sudden, he's going to be starting today against the Diamondbacks, and we didn't expect him back until, I don't know, maybe another week or so, but the Phillies basically had no choice after pitching like every single guy on their roster, including two hitters. It was Casper Wells who ended up losing the game, no surprise, and there was another uh, hitter that was pitching before Casper Wells. So Roy Halladay is back after undergoing major shoulder surgery earlier in the year and obviously missing the majority of the season. His last rehab start, he topped out at 89 miles an hour, and he averaged about 90 this season, peaking at 92. So this is a significant drop, but again, not a surprise after coming off of significant shoulder surgery. Is he going to be worth anything in any fantasy leagues this year? Yeah, I mean, if you're in a really deep league, maybe an NL-only league, um, he might be worth holding on to. I mean, if you got the roster spot, there's really no reason not to burn it right now and just see what you have. Leave him on your bench. Don't start him today. Kind of see what happens. But, you know, with how he looked earlier this season with the velocity, uh, the shoulder surgery he had wasn't really like a major shoulder shoulder surgery. It was more of kind of a cleanup. So uh, that kind of leads me to believe that they didn't find any like real smoking gun in there, like a torn, you know, torn labrum or something like that, that could really explain a lot of this. So some of this drop off is, is probably just old age drop off, wear and tear on the shoulder drop off. And the other thing is shoulder strength takes a fairly long time to come back even from minor surgeries we've seen that in the past that shoulder surgery is one of those things with all kinds of shoulder surgery one of those things that um man try saying that five times fast shoulder surgery um <laughs> but it, it's one of those things that it, it takes a long time i mean some of these pitchers that have like the slap the, the labrum things it, it takes them a couple of years to get going so even if we see him this year and i don't think that velocity will be back up um, he's still, it sounds like he's still working on the command in the minor leagues. 
I don't know. I, I just think you can find better things on the wire if you're streaming people. Yeah, I think we agree on the conclusion here, but I would say that Halliday's surgery was pretty major. Uh, I'm reading here, he had a bone spur removed from his right shoulder, as well as uh, a partially torn rotator cuff and a frayed labrum repaired. That sounds pretty serious to me. The torn rotator cuff, I feel like, is one of the most serious shoulder injuries, plus the frayed labrum, plus the bone spur removed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, bone spurs in the shoulder, I, or bone spurs in elbow, elbow shoulder, whatever. Uh, th- I don't think those are really a big deal. No, I, the, the, the labrum and rotator cuff are concerning. Uh, with, with the frayed labrum, usually they just uh, they shave it down. I actually have had shoulder problems. That's kind of what ended my fake, promising high school pitching career. You on the career DL? Yeah, before I realized that uh, I wasn't going to be making the money pitching in Class A for the Montreal Expos or something. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I agree. I don't want to downplay it and say it was like nothing. Um, but compared to like a slap surgery, I mean, like a slap surgery or something like that, that Pineda had can put you out of out of uh, action for a couple of years. So, I mean, this is one of those things where he's coming back. He says he feels good. Uh, you know, I just don't think he's going to be all there until it, if you think he's going to be back after the surgery. I just don't think you're going to see it till next year. Yeah. Plus, there was another problem is that his control wasn't good. Earlier in the season as well. He had problems throwing first pitch strikes. I mean, Roy Halladay is basically the poster boy for elite control. And consistently, nearly every single year, he was putting up mid-60% first strike rates. And yet this year, that fell all the way down to about 52%, which is more than 10% below what he's ever done in the past. So aside from the lack of velocity that he's going to be coming back with, you also have to wonder what his control is going to be like. And if you look, it's only been two rehab starts so far, but the control in those two rehab starts haven't been great. Three walks in six innings in both of them. It's not Roy Halladay-like. So, I mean, he's coming back. It's not like he's coming on back with the, the Tigers or the Braves or, or a good team. He's coming back to a team that's not good. doesn't have a good offense. And so, I to me, even in an NL only, unless um, – desperate and basically maybe in like seventh place and I just need to take a risk because that's the only possible way to move up unless I'm in that kind of a position then I won't I want no part of Roy Halladay this season yeah I mean I'm kind of with you and even if you do want to pick him up I I really need to stress that uh, there's really no reason to start him for at least probably two or three starts to kind of see what you got I think the absolute best case scenario is he gives you something like league average production the last couple weeks of the year and in like a 16 team NL only maybe that's worth something but in general I I kind of agree with you I'm not taking any chances on him in any of my leagues so all right another of the hobbled returning Monday is Derek Jeter and man oh man has Derek Jeter had quite the season let me recap it for you So he returned from ankle surgery July 11th. He played one measly game. He was then DL'd on July 19th with a strained quad. He returns July 28th, plays four games this time, and then placed right back on the DL on August 5th with a calf strain. What a disaster it's been for Jeter. Yeah. I mean, the good news for Jeter owners is it sounds like he played one game, then got hurt. He played four games, and then got hurt. So at least you're looking at, like, (laughs) ten games. Yeah, like— Ten games now. I mean, great, right? Oh God! Is there any hope for value here? Uh, I mean, if you could use the help in batting average, 
I mean, maybe like, you know, I'd still probably roster him maybe as a middle infielder in a deeper mixed league or something like that. I, I wouldn't want him to be my starting shortstop. I mean, he's probably not going to run at all. I mean, he's all his injuries are leg injuries this year. So that, you know, pretty much throws stolen base out the window. I mean, I know he didn't I don't even think he attempted one um, since he's been back, but you can't count him for more than the stolen base or two. Uh, the power's been kind of declining, even with the short porch and right field. He might knock a couple homers out of there. Uh, I mean, there's really just uh, the run total is probably not going to be great. Uh, I know the Yankees have been a little better over the last couple weeks in terms of actually scoring runs. Um, so if he bats at the top of that lineup, maybe he'll do a little better than he would have in like, you know, June Yankees or something like that. Uh, I don't know. There's just nothing for me to get excited about here. Yeah, I remember the guy's 39 years old. So even if he wasn't coming off of all of these leg and ankle injuries, his stolen base totals probably would have dropped. And I mean, he only stole nine bases last year to begin with. So yeah. double digits are way in the past. And and you got to assume as a 39-year-old, he's probably not going to be putting up another mid-teens home run per fly ball ratio. So let's say a full season brings five to ten home runs, maybe five steals. And, and it, it seems like you can count on batting average and... I would say you can still count on runs scored just compared to replacement level at shortstop. There's, I can't imagine him not hitting in either the number one or the number two slot. I mean, Derek Jeter has batted at the top of the order his entire Yankees career. There's no way they're going to drop him to the bottom of the lineup. So it'll probably be Brett Gardner hitting uh, leadoff and then Jeter hitting second, which is still a pretty good spot. And I think he'll get enough at bats as long as he remains healthy with the improved Yankees lineup to at least be a, a little above replacement level and run scored. So I think he's a two category guy, but still that's like barely replacement level to me. Yeah. And a lot of that's going to depend on the depth of your league. I mean, you're going to see Jeter probably get rostered in pretty much almost anything. But I mean, if you're talking, you know, a 10 team standard league where you're not playing middle infielders, you're just playing second and short. He's probably way below replacement level there. I mean, if you're in like a 16 team a only, obviously it's a, a different story. And then you also have to wonder, how many more years does he have with these high BABIP skills? Because in his career, he's at 354. Last year, 347. The year before that, 336. You basically rely on him having a, a mid-300 BABIP, which is what's contributed to his high batting average. But again, at 39 years old, can you continue to count on a high BABIP, given the fact that you assume his speed is probably gone? And, and now you're just relying on him to hit a bunch of line drives, go the opposite way like he usually does. And you don't know if that skill is going to deteriorate. And if he only posts a 300 BABIP, then suddenly he's batting, you know, 260, 270 because he just doesn't have that much power. And, you know, obviously home runs are automatic hits. And so you're just basically relying on a bunch of singles. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and the other thing, and you kind of touched on it, is you have to wonder how much of his BAPIP is, is uh, fueled by his ability to kind of spray spray the field. So he's kind of shift independent, you know, because he can kind of put the ball. He's in the past been able to go to right field with it and things like that. Um, but that's another thing that we don't really know how well that's going to age. You know, some guys kind of lose the ability to, to play to all fields as they get older. Or some, you know, some guys lose the ability to pull or some guys lose the ability to go opposite way. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, I kind of agree with you. That's that that BABIP will also probably come down at some point, but it's something yeah. to keep an eye on. BABIP does not age well, and although it's not the exact same circumstance, we've already seen it with Ichiro, whose BABIP now, mm -hmm. yeah. the highest BABIP over the last three years has been 300, and he owns a 344 career BABIP. So 
eventually these skills do decline. And Babip, uh, I believe, I don't have the age curve up now, but I know Bill Petty and Jeff Zimmerman, I believe it was either this offseason or last year. They had all the aging curves. And one of them was Babip, and I, I believe it was basically a just decline as a uh, hitter ages. So these things are going to happen. And even though Derek Jeter has been godly in the category, uh, I doubt he's completely immune to it. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's get to our last person who is going to be returning from injury. And that's Clay Buckholtz, who at this time he's probably, they think, going to rejoin the rotation on September 4th. And, and this is a guy whose last start was all the way back on June 8th. And already the speculation that it's going to be Ryan Dempster who's going to be booted from the Red Sox rotation to make room for Buckholtz. And uh, he's supposed to make his first rehab start today. So he's coming back from a strained neck followed by shoulder inflammation. So it'll be very interesting to see where he's at physically, how his fastball velocity is, if his shoulder uh, has, has hurt him in that regard. And uh, what are you expecting from him the rest of the way, assuming he does come back in early September like he's supposed to? Yeah, I mean, this has been a funny story um, all along. I think he missed a start uh, way back in May or June, and, and the actual team explanation was that his, uh, his like, two-year-old daughter fell asleep on his arm and strained his AC joint or something like that. Hey, that's up uh, there with uh, hurting your arm playing Guitar Hero. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good old Joel Zamaya. Um <laughs> And then, you know, he came back and he, I think he pitched in another start or two and looked okay. And then the next thing you, you heard was he like fell over trying to feel the ball at first base. And then that was to strain his neck. So this has kind of been uh, a little, I don't want to say a point of contention, but it's kind of been this weird story that's lingered all summer. Uh, I mean, the Red Sox could use the Clay Buckholtz of 2013, or at least of the beginning of 2013. Uh, whether or not that Clay Buckholtz is the one that comes back, uh, you know, kind of remains to be seen. Uh, I know there's I've actually disagreed with some people on his his skill adjustment this year. Um, I mean, his for example, his his xFIP was way down, and some of his other rates are up. His strikeout rates way up. But then if you look at some of the underlying underlying things, you know, swinging strike rates not up that much. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether some of those those you know pseudo gains that he's made uh, will be something sustainable. The red like I you know the Red Sox really could use him. Um, in that regard, one thing I do want to keep an eye on is uh, I wrote an article for I think it was Rotographs in the off season about looking at Buckholtz's pitch selection and pitch sequencing. And last year, when he really turned it on toward the end of the year on pitch really well, he had introduced a splitter into his arsenal, and uh, he didn't really use it a lot at the beginning of the year. And he was just starting to kind of dabble in it again in May when he got hurt. And I think that's a big plus pitch for him. So it'll be interesting to see after this time off whether he still toys around with that pitch. Uh, it was one of his uh, better strikeout-inducing pitches last year. Uh, so if, if that comes back, I think you could see uh, uh, some, some good rates from him. Uh, regardless, I think if he's been dropped in your leagues, I think you got to roster him just on the you know the upside potential. Um, but he's kind of another guy with Halliday. I might let kind of start a couple starts before I get him right back in there. Right. He's a guy, if you want to compare him to Halliday, at least Buckholt is coming back to a very good team with a good offense. Whereas Halliday is coming back to a bad team, and so that is a, a real point in Buckholz's favor, comparing the two. And you mentioned that you you disagreed with a lot of people uh, about Buckholz. So were you on the side thinking that earlier in the season he's been real lucky? Uh, no, I'm I'm actually well. So I don't believe he's 
as good as his 171 ERA leads you to believe. But, uh, you know, like me and Eno had this discussion back and forth on Twitter, and I think a couple other people were involved in it. Um, you know, I tend to think that some of these gains are sustainable that he's made. Um, you know, it really comes down to how you feel about things like edge percentage and pitch sequencing and, and things like that. So if you just look at uh, maybe, you know, swinging strike rate, it's up a little bit this year, but it's not up a whole lot. So maybe you're saying, well, OK, I'm kind of looking at him to settle in like the high threes or something for an ERA. Um, whereas I kind of am leaning a little more towards the, you know, the home run to fly ball rate is way down. That's not sustainable. But I think some of the other, you know, he's generally been like a BAPIP suppressor and things like that. So he might be the type of person that will slightly underperform their XFIP as time goes along or something like that. The big difference, because I looked at Buckholtz earlier in the year, and the big difference for him this year has been his called strikes. Yep. So, yeah, his swinging strike rate has been up slightly, but it's really been the called strikes. I mean, his average over his MLB career is right at the league average at 28%. This year it was at 33%, which is basically among the league leaders, and that's a significant increase. And uh, I've looked at the different strike types between swinging, foul, and looking strikes, and all this data is on baseball reference. Unfortunately, Fangraphs does not have it. And looking strikes is actually uh, repeatable. Um, more often than I expected from year to year, which makes me think also that it's somewhat legit in season if you see a spike. Not as much a swinging strike, but it's not far off. So, I mean, what you would hear, the word is with Buckholz is that, oh, he's commanding his pitches better and blah, blah, blah. And I'm always looking at the swinging strikes, and I'm like, well, whatever. Why is he not inducing more swinging strikes if his, his stuff is so good and, and all that stuff? But maybe if he is putting the ball where he wants and commanding his pitch his pitches better, that could lead to more called strikes because he's throwing it exactly where he wants it. And you would think it's not where the batter is expecting it. So yeah, the gains do look somewhat legit, but obviously he's not a sub two ERA guy. Nobody is. He, he seems more like a, maybe a mid three ERA guy. I would expect if I knew he was completely healthy, I think maybe that's the new, Tell, uh, you know, performance level of him going forward. Yeah, and that's probably where I like him. Probably low to mid threes, uh, low to mid threes ERA. Um, I mean, one of the questions is now is, is going to be durability on him. Um, but yeah, so I, like I said, I think you got it. Most uh, most people who've been holding on to him, it looks like he's going to be back. I mean, the, the one thing is that unlike Halliday, who seems to be actually reasonably stretched out, I think Buckles is only supposed to go like three innings today for uh, Class A Lowell or something. So even if he follows this Red Sox prescribed track and comes back next week, you probably can't expect more than five or six innings out of him for still another couple starts after that. Um, so just something to keep in mind. And if you're, you know, you're kind of short in wins and you don't want to, you know, blow innings or something on a guy who might only go four or five innings in a game. Yeah. And, you know, I've always loved Clay Buckholz in the past. I've always projected breakouts previously and uh, I've always loved his stuff. So I, I can never understand why he didn't strike out more batters, why he didn't induce more swinging strikes, because outwardly when you watch him, you, you, you see that he has really good stuff. So you just wonder what has caused him not to induce more swinging strikes than he has because he seemingly has all the stuff and all the pitches to make it happen so, yeah huh. no i mean i think that'd be something interesting maybe in the offseason to look at in terms of what you mentioned with the looking strikes with like edge percentage and pitch sequencing and see if there's something in there that he's improved this year um 
Because, you know, I mean, he's always had a devastating changeup. I mean, part of his problem at the beginning of last year, though, is that you have a dev- devastating changeup, and if you have a 50% swing strike on it, but the other 50% of them you just leave belt high in the middle of the zone, you know, that's not – that having a plus pitch doesn't help you there. Um, so we'll, we'll just have to see what happens going forward. Yeah, and then the other interesting thing that would be worth – looking into is his low BABIP. I mean, a career 279 BABIP. Yet if you look at his underlying metrics, there's really no explanation. You look at his batted ball distribution, yeah, his line drive rate is slightly below the league average, but he's got a high ground ball rate, and ground balls go for hits more often than fly balls. Mm-hmm. His uh, infield fly ball rate is actually below the league average. Uh, if you look at his outside swing percentage, it is actually uh, probably – below the league average uh, for his career. And his outside contact percentage is basically around the league average. So there's really nothing in his entire statistical profile that explains to me how he's managed to maintain a below average BABIP. So that also we can do some diving into to, to figure out what he's doing differently instead of just saying luck, 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 because it's been 720 innings so far, which seems to be uh, close to the... Uh, minimum where bad bip actually means something yeah well it sounds like we've got some good projects for the off season for some of these guys then all right so you know we've done a lot of daily fantasy this year with you you're one of the guys that does an article uh every so often and uh, obviously we have the game on fan graphs and uh i've talked about daily and playing that this year and I think one of the new frontiers, possibly, is coming up with daily player projections. Do you think that could potentially be the next step in player projections? Oh, yeah. I think there's uh, probably a lot of room for the fantasy community to grow in that regard, especially with the advent of things like Fangrass, the game. And, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're writing a lot of articles. Um, we're co-sponsored by Draft Street and things like that, which are, you know, kind of more of these daily – uh, you know, set your salary cap or pick them leaks or things like that, where I think it's getting some owners a little more involved because you're kind of setting rosters every day. Um, but it definitely has the potential to add another level of analysis in terms of hitter pitcher matchups and, and things like that. Um, you know, we do a lot of look at, for example, things like weather conditions, uh, you know, weather conditions over a season uh, aren't going to matter in your, your standard roto league. Um, but for example, in head-to-head, if you have a guy, you got two guys you value quite equally, but one of them's playing at Wrigley with the wind blowing out at 15 miles an hour in the middle of the afternoon, and the other one's playing in, you know, uh, I don't know, Seattle or something like that, and they have the the roof open and it's you know kind of dark and dingy and things like that, uh, you know, there could be a, a non-insignificant uh, difference in those player projections. Yeah, and I think one of the most important things in in the daily projections is platoon splits because mm-hmm. the salaries do not get adjusted. I mean, maybe they do on other sites, but I know on FanDuel they, they get adjusted every day, but they're not adjusted based on the opponent. So platoon splits really come into play, and I think a really good example is Cody Ross because normally you look at Cody Ross and you're like, meh. He's not a guy that you normally would want on your daily fantasy because he's probably not going to be a real great value and he's not good. And his value, his salary, is going to be represented based on his overall statistical, mediocre statistical line. However, if you look into the splits, when he faces a lefty, 
His career WOBA is 396. So he's basically Paul Goldschmidt against lefties. And yet, against righties, he's terrible. He's got a 313 WOBA. And his salary takes into account, obviously, both. His entire statistical line. So when he faces a lefty, he's going to be significantly undervalued. When he faces a righty, he's going to be overvalued. And these are the types of things that, without looking at the splits, you're going to have no idea. You're going to gloss right over Cody Ross's name. You're going to say, meh, I don't care about Cody Ross. He's very mediocre. I don't want him on my team. But when he's facing a lefty, he's a monster, and he's somebody to almost guarantee that you get him in your lineup. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's one of the things that you know we've tried to exploit a lot with um, with the daily columns that we, we write on Rotographs now. Um, Cody Ross, a great example of it. Guys like Matt Joyce, great example. I mean, it works the other way too. I mean, we've had a lot of situations where, you know, Anthony Rizzo, for example, you might love Anthony Rizzo integrated over the course of a season. Like, so his dollar value might be projected at who knows what it is, but you know, the Anthony Rizzo is, uh, very susceptible to good left-handed pitching who have good left-handed right-handed you know woba splits or xfip splits or whatever you want to look at so that's one of the situations where you want to get him out of your lineup and get someone else into your lineup on those days and you don't want to pay the premium to have somebody that's going to you know whiff three times in a game or something like that yeah and another example is rockies hitters they already have half of their games at course field factored into their salary so mm-hmm. when they're playing in an away game they're probably going to be overvalued yeah and some situation i mean you're going to assume that half of their games, if you completely average their scenario and assume that the Rockies play half their games at Coors and half the games, let's say it's league average parks or things like that, you're probably getting a, a slight discount on them at Coors, but then you're overpaying for them at other ballparks. Whereas for other players, your average is going to be more weighted to the league average. So having an opposing player come into Coors, that's when you take a, a bigger bump in value. So in a lot of situations, playing guys on the Rockies is probably not going to be an ideal situation unless you have a really good matchup for them at home. Yeah, and it's really tough to find these guys, these platoon split guys like Cody Ross. I don't think there's any way to automatically basically look at who I, I think actually one of you guys took a look at who had the biggest platoon splits, and this was a while ago, and, and that was a really, really informative article. But I think the whole process is pretty manual in, in trying to see who has – the biggest Cody Ross-like splits between their lefty and, and righty platoon issues. And and that could become your list of guys that are basically going to be guaranteed to be under and o- overvalued when they're facing the opposite-handed uh, pitcher in these leagues. But I don't think there's a real easy way, which is where the, the daily player projections could really help because then you could immediately look at the daily projections and see who gets a boost in value, compare them to the salary, and then you're on your way to constructing an optimal lineup. Yeah, and, and that could be something that, uh, you know, the things you were mentioning, I think they were, um, you know, we have we have Blake, uh, Blake Murphy and Brett Talley have been doing a lot of stuff like that. And they do a lot of manual. It's a lot of Excel spreadsheets, VLOOKUP tables, things like that. I've kind of started dabbling in the pitcher splits. So pitchers that are, you know, the Justin Masterson type pitchers who are susceptible to certain hitters. But I think, you know, when you do that type of analysis, the next logical step is to kind of combine that information and look at, you know, ballparks and opposing hitters and, and your hitter given, you know, facing a pitcher handedness and coming up with some uh, crude metrics. And I think it's it's kind of low hanging fruit for people in the community to kind of start looking at. Uh, it's also very applicable to daily to, to just regular roto leagues that might have daily uh, roster changes. Uh, so it's something that I, I could certainly foresee becoming more important in the next few years. 
Yeah, it doesn't even end at platoon splits. You could also look at batted ball distribution because I know this mm-hmm. research, ground ball hitters versus ground ball pitchers, I believe that actually favors the hitter when the hitter is the same plane as the pitcher is throwing. And that's actually like fly ball hitters against fly ball pitchers. It's good for the hitter, I believe. Uh, and I think it was the opposite of what I would have expected. And I think it's because of the plane of the, I know Eno talks about swing plane a lot in his player interviews. And when you have a, a fly ball hitter against a fly ball pitcher, so his swing plane is already set up to face that type of a pitcher. And so that favors the hitter. And that's another thing that can get factored into a daily player projection, as well as pitch repertoire. If you have a really good fastball hitter against a guy with a mediocre fastball or a guy who's really good against a changeup against a guy who throws a lot of changeups, that's not necessarily that great. All of these things could potentially factor into daily player projections. Yeah, sounds like we need a daily version of of Pod's projections starting next year. I think you should get on it. So, <laughs> uh, I'm going to hire Steve Stodd to <laughs> my math ninja and to take care of that for me. Yeah, if you're going to have a math ninja, Steve's a pretty good one to have. So, <laughs> yeah, his stuff is pretty unbelievable. Yeah. All right, let's quickly talk about Andrew Lambo, and then I will let you go off kayaking that I know oh. you're eager to do. Oh yes. <laughs> So Andrew Lambeau is back up now after Starling Marte has hit the DL, and he's getting a second shot. He didn't get much of a shot when he was called up the first time. Is he somebody to pick up in deeper leagues or even shallower 12-team mixed leagues? Uh, I mean, maybe in deeper leagues, if you need a couple home runs or something, I might snag him. Uh, he might be worth looking at in deeper keeper leagues. I mean, in dynasty leagues, he's actually probably already been scooped up. If he wasn't scooped up before the season, he was probably scooped up during his last call up. I mean, the thing that concerns me with him is he's kind of going to be a, a batting average and an on base killer. Um, you know, he strikes out a lot. It, he's actually regressed. It looks like in the strikeout department and the walk department in the minors this year. So that's not great. Although, Doing so, he's shifted to suddenly being a home run hitter. So there clearly is some sort of, you know, change in approach at the plate, maybe. You know, his ISO is spiked, you know, 150 points. Uh, you know, against against righties, I think he could probably provide a little bit of pop. So if you got daily lineup moves and you can get him in there against righties and things like that, you might reward yourself with a few home runs, and that could be the difference in a couple points. Um, but, you know, I'm not also burning through fab and burning waiver priority to get a guy that, you know, I don't think he's going to play every day down the stretch. So there's really, you know, if you have a glaring hole somewhere, you probably should be looking elsewhere. Yeah, it's pretty clear that he's probably going to get all the time versus right-handers, but he is a lefty, and uh, and the Pirates now have Felix PA. So I, I was looking at their depth chart to see if there would be anybody that they can play against lefties because Lambeau, being a lefty, might be benched against lefties. And uh, I didn't see anybody who could possibly take playing time. And right now, it just popped into my head. I remembered Felix PA. <laughs> now that's the same Felix PA that was a top prospect like 25 years ago. Yeah. And he's back. And and he's a righty, so he probably is going to be in a platoon with Lambo. I would imagine. And, well, and, oh, I'm sorry. PA's a lefty. Scratch that. <laughs> who, they don't. It doesn't seem like like Tabata. T- Tabata would have been a platoon mate, but. I mean, their outfield has been killed with injuries, so I feel like Tabata is basically playing every day now. And so, is do, do they even have a platoon mate for Lambo? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, have you, uh, have either you or you know, even I don't, I don't know much about Andrew Lambo to be perfectly honest. I don't know if he's had bad platoon splits in the minors. I, mean, uh, this... I don't think he has. I, I wrote an article about him 
uh, a couple of weeks ago. Let me see if I put anything in here about uh, – here we go. He posted an 853 OPS versus righties over his minor league career, a 730 mark versus southpaws. However, this year it was a 788 mark against lefties. So it doesn't seem like he's absolutely flailing against lefties, and it's respectable enough that he doesn't necessarily have to be platooned. Yeah, it's it's tough because normally if you got a young guy getting called up to the Pirates, you're probably like, whatever, they're not in contention. It doesn't really matter. I would just let Lambeau play every day. You know, and see if he can kind of work some things out against lefties. I, I, teams have done this a lot. I mean, that's kind of the thing they've been doing with like Davis for a couple of years. I mean, we know he's not good against lefties, but you keep throwing him out there with hope that eventually he becomes, uh, you know, not a liability. And that's kind of something that you know, if Lambo's splits aren't so bad, which you know, a 780 uh, OPS against lefties isn't terrible. Uh, the one thing is, you know, if he gets a couple 0 for four with three strikeout games or something, the Pirates going to say, okay. You know, we're in a playoff race. We can't be starting you and having you flail away against lefties. And then he switches over to a platoon guy. Um, so, I mean, it'll be interesting to see going forward. Like I said, I, I think he can help you in a couple categories, maybe. Um, but, and I don't know. How do you, are you rushing to pick him up? Or uh, Also, I mean, the thing is that Starling Marte probably isn't going to miss that much time. It seems like he's probably going to return as soon as he's eligible or not too much after. And so... Yeah. Lambo isn't really going to get that much of an opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where maybe he could hit his way into the lineup, I really suppose. But I I, I don't know. I'm just not tremendously excited yeah. about him. Yeah, I mean, if you're desperate for power and it's a deeper league, you might as well take a shot. But the fact is he's probably going to sit against lefties. I'm sure the Pirates are going to find somebody to, to start over him against lefties. And, and he might not be up very long with Marte coming back in early September. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that's a wrap, folks. So join us again on Tuesday for more fantasy fun on The Sleeper and the Bust. For Colin Zarzicki, I'm Mike Podhorzer. Thanks for tuning in.